We are back Wednesday, and I'm so glad that you're able to be with us. Hope you had a, a great holiday uh, this Thanksgiving season. Some of us go a bit earlier, some of us go a little bit later, according to when the families are here, don't we? Regardless, we have much for which to be thankful. We are in Romans 6 today for our, our midweek Bible study. And it's one of the favorite chapters uh, that people have in Romans. They like 5, 6, 8. Those tend to be the most favorite at all. Some, uh, it'll be 12. And I really like 14 and 15. So pretty much wherever we are in the book. All right. If you're wondering, we're just in another place in the soundstage today. The soundstage where we are has a little dining area. and In fact, a couple of those and a couple of theaters and the like and so we have a lot of room here to do different things during the week and I decided to record here rather than under the harsh fluorescence and super powerful air conditioning that is be, uh, blown in making it a little harder for people to hear some of that by the way has been my fault I have been neglecting putting on the microphone and just relying upon the iPhone mic I do apologize I was told by someone a couple weeks ago that the air conditioning was getting louder and I realized what I'd done so Mia culpa. Romans 6. We, we left last time with uh, Romans 5 saying we are declared righteous. We are justified. We, it's just so wonderful in spite of all of our sins. But then there will be people that will come back with a, well then, we can just go ahead and keep sinning. And they don't do that so that they can get permission to keep sinning. They do that to try to act like whatever Paul said, it's not really true because we're still not declared righteous and we still have to do this. And we, on, they take away the grace element. And that's really why they're asking the question. Paul brings that up in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Or in the old King James, God forbid. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This passage uh, is often used to teach immersion which I believe that it does. In my tradition, we have always immersed adults. Immersed is not a word everyone uses. You go completely under the water in baptism and then up. There's no holding of the breath. It's not a frightening thing by any stretch. And if you are terrified of water, there are ways to help you get into the water and out of the water that would, um, that would allow you to be immersed. There was once a man in our tribe called Alexander Campbell, and he was questioned harshly on whether people who were only sprinkled or had water poured on them or perhaps not baptized at all could go to heaven. And you might want to look up the Lunenberg letter that he wrote in response to that, saying we can't make any one thing the linchpin. It's saying, you know, you can be a wonderful person, but you misunderstood baptism, therefore you're lost forever. No, no. That said, baptism to the people in the first century was, was immersion. And baptism was something they did quite a lot of. Bapt baptism and baptize is another one of those words that King James got in there. 
because the words mean to immerse, to fully submerge, uh, whether it's into water or into the cloud, as we'll talk in another passage, or into teaching. Um, it was always that totally, um, total immersion. But by the time of 1611, when King James Version was produced by his scholars, they had already abandoned immersion and were using sprinkling and such instead. And so he demanded it be transliterized and said, in other words, the Greek words um, for baptizo, just choose English letters and substitute those for the Greek and bring that word forward. See, baptize isn't an English word. It's a made up word by putting English letters on a Greek word. That's called transliteration. So yeah, by that time, and in fact, by the time of, of origin, not, not long after Jesus, people were already uh, substituting pouring water or sprinkling water rather than immersion. I still think immersion is really important for a variety of reasons. I, I do believe that that's the example we have in scripture. The Jewish people were very uh, comfortable with this and understood it. They had been baptized by John the Baptist out in the river, but they also baptized themselves when they went to temple. There were these mikvah or mikvahut, if you have more than one. These were generally cut down into the ground with stairway, stairs going down and steps going out. And you would ritually clean yourself before approaching the temple by going in, submerging yourself and coming out the other side. Sometimes people would do this repeatedly uh, as a sign of devotion or because they felt like they needed the extra cleansing before they approached the temple. So immersion was very well known and that was the practice. And so, yeah, I think so. Besides, when we die to Christ, we are buried with him in baptism. We are raised to walk in a new life. So if you have questions about baptism, uh, please send those in. Pre uh, Patrick at OurSafeHarbor.com Patrick at OurSafeHarbor.com and if you want to be baptized we will find a way to get to you or get our friends to get to you because to us it's that important. Then verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his we'll certainly be also united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. You might want to go back to the October 31st sermon. Go back to October 31st worship. Listen to the sermon about how we are, the you know, freedom for the prisoners was one of the lines we used. And we talked about this, uh, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. <clears throat> now, there was a uh, a Christian comedian that was very, very big on the teen circuit way back in the 80s. And he had this line that was, um, was meant to shock the listeners so that he could then slip in a truth. And he would say since he became a Christian, he still you know, cursed as much as he wanted to. He got drunk as often as he wanted to. And he committed adultery as much as he wanted to. And everybody's you know, shocked in the room. And then he would add, but now that I'm a Christian, I don't want to. And I was going, oh. Well, I think there is some truth to that. I think that when we become a Christian and we draw closer to Christ, we don't want to hurt him. We don't want to shame him. We don't want his, his name to be of poor reputation because of the way 
we treat it by the way we live our lives. Um, but it's not magical. And it's not as if all of your bad tendencies go away and all of your drives and those desires don't magically disappear. And some of them you might have to fight the rest of your life like Paul did. He called his a thorn in the flesh and God did not remove it, but assured him that his grace would cover him. The same with us, <coughs> but we don't treat sin casually. We try to do better. He says, if we died with Christ, we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And he goes, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin. Need to talk about the word dead. The word dead, death, die, all of these come from a root word, which means separation. And so when the day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they, they were separated from God. They died. They also began the separation process of body and spirit because their body would begin to die and become uh, susceptible to death as all bodies have since then been susceptible to death. So death is separation. And he says God has, you know, he died to sin. He separated that from us. We need to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that's a, there's two parts there. All right, let's talk about this. We die to sin because we're alive to Jesus. You know, I, I do not flirt or hang about with other women because I am married to Cammie. Most of us can understand this. Uh, they, we, we have made a choice, and although I love being married to Cammie, it does mean that it's severely crimped my dating life. You get the point, right? Let, let's just pretend I had a dating life, all right? That would help me out with this illustration. The closer we draw to Christ, the less attractive certain sins will be. I can remember, I ran a counseling practice for eight years, almost nine years. And uh, because I had to, not because I wanted to, it was, it was a service that had to be provided. Um, and one of the things I would often remark about to the elders of that church that provided the space, the time, and the opportunity to do this for free for people, but also to my wife, is I would say, I wish those people who took sin so casually would just sit in my office and see what damage a fling does, an affair, to see what damage just a little bit of buzz drinking does, to see the effects of sin, to see the seriousness of it. Now in the Old Testament times, they had a visual aid for it. They had an altar uh, made out of uncut stone. It was not to be pretty. It was to be rough and rugged. And all the sacrifices on it, the burning of the, the flesh and the fat and the organs, uh, it's a myth that they burn the whole animal. They would do that sometimes, but most of the time there was food there provided for the priest. And there's a whole thing about how they got it and how some people cheated on that. But the rest of it, skin, hair, fat, all that is burning on this thing. Stench. And you don't get to clean it. Ever. Year after year, more of it's caked on. It's an ugly thing. You don't want to get downwind to this. Why did God do that? Why did he give them rules that they couldn't make it pretty or clean it? Because he wanted them to see what sin looked like, what sin cost. 
we we need just to kind of say you know we look on television and we see or the movies and we see people behaving in a certain way and we keep going well where's the jesus here there's a cost and we're not being shown the cost i mean um one of the worst shows ever for um police if you if you know anything about police or the like was hawaii 50 and i'm so glad that went away uh, every single episode, they would violate people's civil rights. They would violate the Constitution. Um, bullets were magical, and so were they. You know, to the point where one guy gets a uh, a liver transplant, partial liver transplant from his partner, and yet very shortly thereafter, he's running around, jumping out of things, parachuting. And no, when you get hit with a bullet, it's not just a scratch, and it's not just a flesh wound. It's cutting nerves, blood vessels, arteries. It is pushing fluid to the rest of your body. And it's therefore blood vessels rupturing, nerves being stressed, organs failing. It's serious. It's not pretty. And it's not fun just because, well, look how he shot those eight bad guys. Ha ha ha. No, it's not fun. Sin is not fun. Therefore, we need to draw closer to Jesus and let the light of God show us that sin is not as fun as we thought it was, All right? Therefore, he says in verse 13, don't offer any part of yourself as a sin to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God so that you that have been bought, brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of, of righteousness. It takes a while, it does. And we'll never really entirely get there. That's why grace is such a big part of the book of Romans and such a big part of scripture. And by the way, it's a big part in the Old Testament too. I, I don't really get it when I hear preachers say the Old Testament was a book of laws, the New Testament a book of grace. I'm going, I see a lot of grace. Everywhere you go, where God is, grace. In fact, he goes, now sin is no longer your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. And again, people misuse that. And they'll say, well, we're, sin was a master because we were under the law. No, the law showed us how much sin was out there that we were committing. God now pulls us to a different place. Instead of giving us a bunch of laws, over 600 in the Old Testament, he, he gives us this, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Draw close to Christ and do that. We've been, we've been freed from a lot, but re being required to love God and our neighbor is actually quite, quite the homework. Uh, it's going to take us the rest of our lives to do that well. And so, in fact, he goes, what then? So shall we sin? because we're not under the law, but under grace. No, 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 no. And he talks about this. He just repeats this again in, in chapter six, really trying to use, and he, and he talks about, it. I'm using illustrations from real life to help you with a big problem here. You've been set free from sin, but become a slave to righteousness. I'm not a songwriter, but I'm working on lyrics now because I've been, just been touched by this concept of Jesus throwing down chains and his chains have made us free. That's a big part of this book. And it's very, very true. Just in the same way that being bound to Cami 
has made me free because I know she'll love me, she promised. And I know I'll love her, I'll promise. You know, I've, I've promised. I know we're going to take care of each other. I know all that, why? Because we threw chains on each other that made us free, free from fear. Uh, we, we know where the other person is and, and what they're, you know, it's a good thing. And so let him put his chains on you because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I think we've heard that before. Um, and he, Paul even brings up again that dirtiness of sin. He goes, when you're slaves to sin, what benefit did you really get from this? I mean, there's a whole new sexually transmitted disease that's popping up in England, and I don't even want to describe it because it's really, really gross. Why don't we not do things that bring this into our world and into our home? Um, we've been set free from sin, slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then chapter 7. Chapter 7 is really, really important to me. Now the first part, uh, I've heard it taught many times, that um, verses 1 through uh, 6, as God's law about marriage. And it is a reference to the laws of the time. But he's using this as an illustration. And I'm always a little hesitant to use Paul's illustrations whenever he brings in a law or a custom or a practice of the time to illustrate an eternal principle, that we don't shove the eternal principle on top of his illustration of the things of the time, such as in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about short hair on women was a shame and long hair on men was a shame, and he was referring to the custom of the time. A lot of people eternalized that and made it an eternal law for all times, and he was just using it for an illustration. So here, the warning is, don't try to be married to the old law and the new at the same time. You know, the law has authority over somebody as long as that person lives, and he says, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies and she's released from that law, and is not an adult, she's not an adulteress if she marries another man. And so again, he says, you died to the law. Don't try to drag that into your life now. Um, I've had very long discussions with people who truly believe that if they learn some Hebrew words and blow a chauffeur, uh, a big friend's ram's horn, shofar, as some would pronounce it, and if they uh, observe some holy days, and if they say Yeshua instead of Jesus, that God will like them better. I think it's wonderful to, to know more about the old law, and if you want to eat kosher, you're free to do that. It, I don't think you should be out there doing the sacrifices of animals, but there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that were written for our learning, and so we should learn from them but we are married to Christ, the fulfillment of the law. So, verse six, by now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. 
And then he, he goes in to defend the law, to say God didn't make a mistake when he gave you the law. Was the sin, law sinful? No. He says, I wouldn't have even known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. And that's the point. The law pointed out sin, but the law couldn't make you holy. It could make you obedient to one degree or another. Rather like traffic laws. You know, I try to follow traffic laws, but I've looked down before and gone, uh-oh, that needle's gone up a little bit high on the speedometer. I need to slow down. Or I've, I've made some other error, right? We try to follow the law. And I'm told by accountants that nobody can fill out a tax form without some violation because the tax code is so huge, so complex. And that's why uh, study after study has shown that if you call the IRS with the same question four times, you're likely to get at least two different answers and sometimes four. It's complicated. Well, God's law wasn't like that. It, it, was, it was very, very thorough, but it showed us that we could not do this on our own. We needed a savior. And so we come to a savior. In fact, um, I like verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. But then did that which is good become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, my separation, so that through the commandment, sin might become uh, utterly sinful. Because I see the commandment, it's not just a little sin, it's utterly sinful. And now I understand that I am I'm really in trouble and I really need a savior. Of course, good news, we have one. But I, I really wanna focus now on verses 14 and forward because Paul is using the present tense. I've read this before and, and delivered sermons and had preachers run up to me and say, no, 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 Paul was past all this. He's using this to talk about his past. No, he isn't. Paul knows how to use the past tense. He's done it a few times here. Listen to what he says. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Right with you, Paul? Me too. I do not understand what I do. Me too. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Yep. That's been my experience. What about you? And if I do what I do not want to do, I, I agree that the law is good. In other words, I've done something wrong and I, I have to admit, I know it's wrong because the law says it's wrong. So the law was good. Not the law's fault, but I'm failing. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. And that doesn't mean the devil made you do it. It means, you know, I get to choose who lives in my body and in my mind. I get to choose who I rent space to. And I just gave it to the wrong, wrong thing. That's why I need to do some house cleaning. As Paul warned, you know, don't let them build territories in your head. Don't seed ground in your brain or heart or life that belongs to God. Don't seed it back to the world and to evil. He goes... For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. And by the way, 
NIV uses the term sinful nature. The word there just means body, flesh. Sinful nature is part of that old original sin idea, and I wish NIV didn't do that. Just in our bodies, in our weakness. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. But if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I just rented out my body and mind. Need, need to go back in and get some control there. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I'm right there. Are you right there? Are you, are you willing to admit you're right there with Paul and Patrick? Then the good news is, thanks be to God who delivers me, Paul, me, Patrick, and you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you notice what's not in this? Who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. If I worship right, right organize the right church, have the right name on the outside of the building, do the right thing here and sit and don't do these 5,500 things that our church is. No. Jesus loves us enough to deliver us from this. Why is such good news so hard to accept? What would my marriage be like if I, I daily walked up to, to Cammy and said, why'd you marry me? I don't see how you could love me. I don't just, sure, really? Uh, okay. Every day. And yet that's the way, and it's a form of pride, but we think it's humility that we deal with. I don't know, kind of a sinner. I'm just not really good. Hope I'm doing everything right. Well, well, let me help you with that. You're not. You never will. You never will do everything right. If you could, you wouldn't have needed Jesus. You need Jesus. I think we're done with this. So then I, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, again, the NIV, in my body, I'm a slave to the law of sin. So we're going to have to fight this. We're going to have to fight this the rest of our lives. But we have help. And God's already declared that we win. How cool is that? Well, we'll do chapter 8, which is, I mean, I hate stopping here because it slides right into some beautiful, fantastic territory. You can read ahead. Just don't tell the others. God bless. Hope to see you next Wednesday.